Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to episode 91 of the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. For anyone who's considering uh, potentially investing, you need to make sure that A, you do your research, and B, that you know if you do decide to invest, it needs to be proportionate with that risk. I think it's difficult to get a kind of balanced view of cryptocurrencies really everything feels like people are either really anti it or sort of think it's 100% going to be the future of all money. Cambridge University suggested just the other day that Bitcoin now uses more electricity a year than the whole of Argentina so it is an enormous problem. This week, I'm joined by Gavin Brown, an associate professor in financial technology at the University of Liverpool for a fascinating deep dive into cryptocurrency. Find out how it all works, why people are investing and how to invest. Plus, we'll discuss the risks involved and tackle the issue of sustainability. We are which? Gavin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Can we start right at the entry level stuff? Because cryptocurrency is a bit of a minefield. It's a digital currency that isn't controlled by a country or central bank like regular money. Instead, it's based on what's known as blockchain technology. What on earth does this all mean and how does it all work? Yeah, great question, Lucia, and thanks very much for inviting me on today. Um, Well, certainly it's the case that um, Bitcoin itself is about uh, just over 12 years old now. Um, and effectively, as you say, it is it is a new type of money, although people often uh, sort of debate whether it is a money or an asset, you know, what exactly is it? But it's certainly unrefuted that it is something different to what we've seen before. Um, effectively, what this is, as you said, it's um, it's, a, it's a form of, of currency or, or digital asset or digital wealth, which effectively allows people to do banking without the need for a bank. So what it does is, is at the same time, let's say at the moment, if you wanted to uh, store money in a in a bank account or you wanted to move money to different parts of the world to other counterparties, at this moment in time, you need payment intermediaries. You need your bank, who you bank with. Uh, you need uh, kind of payment brokers, people like that in between. Now, Bitcoin, what it does is, is it allows you to do those things, but without the need for those institutions. And effectively, instead of relying on a on a central or controlling company or group of companies, Instead, it relies uh, on a community. So those communities are what we know as the Bitcoin miners. Um, And effectively, what they're doing is is they're doing the same checks and verifications that currently happen in the existing financial system. But instead of um, those checks being done by just one single controlling party, it's actually done by an entire community, which is often where this this word or phrase decentralized comes from. So it's a decentralized form of finance, which essentially gives people access to banking as long as they can connect to the network. And all they need to do that is either an Internet connection or a mobile phone signal. And can you explain this term blockchain? It comes up a lot. How does this fit in? 
Sure, yeah. So a blockchain is just a type of database, really. It's not something massively new. Often people think it's, it's, it came along when Bitcoin came along. It certainly didn't. It's been around for some time. And it's an example of what's known as a DLT. So DLT stands for Decentralized Ledger Technology. Now, I myself, I'm a chartered accountant. And for anyone who's interested in finance and accounting, you know what a ledger is. A ledger is just a record, a written record of things that have happened. And typically in the world of finance, that's transactions, money coming in, money going out. So all a blockchain is, 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 a, is a written record of transactions which have happened historically. Um, the only difference here, though, is that it's a decentralized ledger. So a ledger typically is controlled by a company or a central bank or a government. So it's controlled by a central party. In the case of Bitcoin, as I mentioned before, that this blockchain, instead of it being um, managed by just one person or one company, instead it's managed by a community. Now, what that means is, is that it's permissionless. So if we wanted to now, you could go online and you and I can go and have a look at Bitcoin transactions happening in real time, being written to the ledger. And we can also look back at all historical transactions which have happened over the last 12 to 13 years. So it's a, a completely permissionless system which allows people not only to access and use Bitcoin as a form of a, as a financial system, in effect, but it also allows you to interrogate and view any transaction that's ever happened. So Bitcoin is, in fact, it's quite strange, really, because it's a it's a completely transparent system. Everybody can see everything all the time. It doesn't make any um, um, sort of justification to keep people out or enter into the system. Everyone can use it and everyone can see it. Now, although it's completely transparent, there are also the flip side of Bitcoin, um, which is obviously more associated with the idea that, that, that a lot of people will use it in the uh, kind of illicit world or any or even potentially illegal world. Uh, but maybe that's another another conversation for another question, perhaps. Well, let's first talk about its popularity then, because last summer, the FCA estimated that one in 25 UK adults owned cryptocurrency. So what exactly are they doing with it? Are, are there things you could buy with it, things that you might ordinarily buy, or is it used mainly as an investment in the hope that it, it'll go up in value? Yeah, this is a great point, really, because and, and often this is what drives the classification as to whether, you know, is Bitcoin a, a currency? Is it an asset? Um, uh, thinking back historically, many jurisdictions classified Bitcoin as property. OK, so under under tax rules and regulatory rules, it was classified as property because effectively it's a new type of, of thing, a new type of asset which doesn't quite fit into our taxonomy and we can't classify it nice and easily into into one of these. And one of the problems and, and reasons for that, that kind of problem um, is as you just described there, is the fact that people hold Bitcoin for many different reasons. I think it's true to say, and there's many estimates on this, that um, Bitcoin or people holding Bitcoin, lots of people have bought their Bitcoin and then don't ever use it. So it's literally a buy and hold strategy. They're holding it as a speculative asset, hoping to make a capital gain. Um, equally, though, there are people who use it and who trade it. Uh, in terms of what you can actually use it for, in terms of its money, so you know, what can I buy with my Bitcoin, Historically, this has always been an argument against Bitcoin. There's never been a lot you could do with it. You know, maybe the odd coffee shop here and there. There are uh, a number of ATMs in many of the cities um, in sort of London and the big cities in the north as well. Uh, but generally speaking, there wasn't a lot you could do with it. Uh, however, that is start starting to change. Uh, Tesla announced uh, just a couple of months ago that, uh, that they're, they're potentially going to be looking at accepting 
Bitcoin as payment. And perhaps the biggest news which came out last year in the second half of last year is that PayPal were going to start to permit people to pay with Bitcoin. Now, that, that is big news because globally, PayPal have 60 million merchants. So that means whenever someone sets up a website for whatever commercial uh, enterprise they have, they copy and paste the, the pay with PayPal button onto their website. And instinctively, what that will mean is as soon as you click on that, it will offer you all the different methods of payment, debit card, credit card, etc. But then there will also be a category for pay with Bitcoin or pay with cryptocurrency. So as soon as those sorts of things start to come online, the utility, in other words, the things we can do with Bitcoin will start to increase significantly. And we may start to see a shift away from people buying Bitcoin just to go up in price as a speculation and actually more towards using it as a, as a functional currency, perhaps. So we've already mentioned Bitcoin quite a bit. Even if cryptocurrency is all quite new to you, you've probably heard of Bitcoin, which is the largest cryptocurrency. But there are hundreds of digital currencies out there. So Gavin, talk us through Bitcoin. Why is it a cut above the rest? And how does it compare to the next largest digital currencies? Well, it's certainly the case that that Bitcoin is the largest. So in approximate terms, we're, we're looking at um, a total market capitalization for all coins of uh, around about one and a half trillion dollars based on today's prices. Um, of that, the Bitcoin valuation is a trillion dollars. So two thirds of the market by valuation is Bitcoin. And the other third is then split amongst what's often termed to be the alternative currencies. Um, typically, this is just referred to as alts. Yeah. Now, now with these uh, with these alts in total, there are over eight and a half thousand coins. OK, so uh, a lot of people think that, it, you know, some people think it's just Bitcoin. Some people think it's Bitcoin and a few others. There are, in fact, over eight thousand coins with a positive value. Now, the reason for this is that the barriers to entry to create a new currency, a new cryptocurrency are almost nil. You know, it would take just a couple of hours to code or create a coin and we can then release it onto the sort of general market, so to speak. The problem is, or the challenge companies have, is how do you convince people that your currency has a unique offering and that it does indeed have value? Now, what we tend to see is that there is a cluster of, of bigger coins just behind Bitcoin. So the, the second biggest coin is typically uh, Ethereum. Uh, so Ethereum is a is a different type of offering to Bitcoin. So rather than it just being um, a, a currency or a cryptocurrency in the sense that that Bitcoin is, it also offers and is, is a platform. Uh, it's a platform upon which other types of technology and other types of, of currencies and new fintech uh, projects can be developed and can actually host themselves on Ethereum. And that all sounds like quite a lot to take in, but I think the easiest way to describe it is um, imagine a world where you are interested in, in the US dollar and the Visa payment network. The US dollar is a currency. The Visa payment network is a, is a piece of infrastructure. And you could buy into each of those two things separately as an investor. That's really what Ethereum is. Ethereum is, a, is an infrastructure play in the sense that you're buying something which can be used by other projects, but you're also buying it as a form of functional currency as well. So Ethereum is the second largest in answer to your question. But behind Ethereum, there is then a number of many, many thousands of coins. And I think the thing to bear in mind here is that in the in the world today, there's only just over 100 currencies in terms of, you know, uh, pound sterling and yen and euros. Um, and so when we look in the world of cryptocurrency and see so many, it's highly likely that many of those projects will not actually uh, bear fruit. Ultimately, they will ultimately fail. And effectively, our job is to try and work out, you know, which are the genuine uh, cryptocurrencies of note and which are potentially ones which we might want to stay clear of as an investor. 
Now, can we go back to the news you mentioned earlier? Uh, there were big headlines uh, last month when Tesla announced its 1.5 billion investment in Bitcoin. And it said that other companies may follow suit. I saw that the, the, the Telegraph reported that Twitter, for example, has also long been considering investing. So what does this mean for Bitcoin's value? And what about the wider knock-on effect? Is this a big step towards Bitcoin and perhaps other cryptocurrencies breaking into the mainstream? Yeah, that's a, that's a really insightful comment. And I think um, so far, I mean, I mean, as I said, Bitcoin is, is 12 years old, um, 12 and a bit years old now. Um, and at the moment, um, it's worth more than the Russian ruble. Um, it's worth more than the Thai baht. It's worth just over 20% of the value of pound sterling. So GBP, pound sterling, has been around for two or three centuries in its current form. Bitcoin has been around for just over a decade and is already 20% of the value of sterling. So it's already kind of on the march. And the question is, 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 is do institutions matter in the adoption of a currency like that? The answer is, in my view, yes, they do. Um, when um, uh, organizations like Tesla announce uh, an acceptance of Bitcoin, there's, there's kind of two things going on. The first thing is, is the idea that they will accept Bitcoin as a form of consideration to buy their products. So uh, there are various companies around the world who will offer goods and services for sale in Bitcoin. And obviously, as more people begin to use it, potentially, as other companies begin to announce these things, it will, may obviously stimulate uh, new companies to come in and do likewise. So there might be this, this kind of domino effect. The second thing, though, is the idea of purchasing Bitcoin as what's known as a treasury or reserve asset. In other words, taking some of your money out of your bank account as a corporation, selling it and purchasing Bitcoin and putting that on your balance sheet instead. Now, this is exactly what Tesla did. Tesla bought $1.5 billion of Bitcoin. And at the same time, uh, Elon Musk was talking quite favorably in the news and on social media about Bitcoin. Um, and four weeks later in their 10K, which is their statutory account, uh, that they released to the to the SEC in the US, um, they declared this. Now, one of the one of the estimates looking at what happened with the Bitcoin price in that time, they've made somewhere between perhaps half a billion to a billion dollars in just over four weeks. So um, the interesting thing with that is that not only do they uh, are they attracted to Bitcoin as a reserve asset, but also it can help them to make speculative gains if the price goes in their favor. Um, that's exactly probably, uh, although we don't know yet until the next set of uh, financial statements, but that's what's happened with Tesla. Um, and, you know, just to put that into context, they probably made more money on that Bitcoin trade than they did in selling cars in the entirety of the previous year. And it's about half the value of their annual R&D spend um, made in terms of profit on that Bitcoin transaction. The question we have, though, is, is what about the downsides? You know, what happens if that Bitcoin price gets volatile? Is that then going to spill over? into creating volatility for the companies who hold it. And that's the big concern of the of the regulators around the world. And we'll get on to volatility later on. Um, but first, um, another type of, of cryptocurrency that I've been really interested in, um, it seems to have blown up, seemingly in the last few days, actually, NFTs. And I'll ask you to, to explain these in a moment, Gavin. It's made the headlines as a way to buy digital art. So an example I've seen of this, uh, last month, a clip of the basketball player LeBron James slam dunking sold for just over $200,000. But why would you want to buy this when you can watch it for free online? And how does this all connect to cryptocurrency and blockchains? How does it all fit in? Yeah, some great, great, great question there. And uh, it, it often leaves you scratching your head a little bit when you see those kind of headlines, right? I know I, know I certainly was the same. Um, so first of all, I think, as you say, let's start with what an NFT is. It stands for non-fungible token. 
And I think the easiest way to define that is by thinking about, well, well, what's a fungible token? So an example of a fungible token is normal currency. So if I've got a pound coin in my pocket and you've got a pound coin in your pocket, um, I could give you my coin, you could give me your coin, and we've neither lost nor gained. The, the coins are identical, they are fungible, they are exchangeable. A non-fungible token means exactly the opposite. They're not exchangeable, they're not identical. So non-fungible tokens are similar to cryptocurrencies in that they are digital assets. They are things which are created in the same way as some of the cryptocurrencies that we've mentioned. But rather than them being exchangeable and of equivalent value, they are in fact um, almost like digital certificates which represent ownership on, on some of the underlying asset. Now, it could be a video, it could be a piece of music, it could be an artwork. So to give you an example of this, there was a, one that happened just a couple of days ago was the example with the Banksy artwork. I'm not sure if you saw this one. Uh, so a group purchased an original Banksy piece of artwork for, I think it was £95,000. Uh, they then burnt the piece of artwork, which isn't a metaphor. They, they physically burnt the, the actual piece of work itself. And then... Um, transferred its identity, the ownership of what that asset was into newly created NFTs and then sold that, that NFT, sold that new token and, and roughly tripled or almost quadrupled the value by that very action. Um, it does raise the question of, you know, what exactly are you buying? So, for instance, uh, Jack Dorsey uh, with Twitter uh, is auctioning off a charity at the moment for an African COVID charity, his very first tweet. He's created an NFT off the back of that and you can purchase that. But as you say, what kind of utility do I get from that? You know, by purchasing that, that tweet is already there. Um, it's not that you can use it in any other way. It just gives you, it's almost bragging rights, almost the ability to say, you know, I own that digital piece of asset. But it is quite an interesting thing for the alternative asset space. There's been many artists who, um, and a lot of people will say this, especially with digital artists, that they their, their work is often copied and they're not properly remunerated for what they do. But if they're able to tokenize their artwork, it means that not only can someone say, you know, I've got a, I've got a copy or, or of a particular piece of artwork, be it digitally or in print format. But if they if they have, actually have the associated NFT, it means they can actually prove the authenticity. They can prove the authenticity of what they've got. So so NFTs are being perhaps used in 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 some not so great ways, um, but also at the same time they are quite interesting, especially in this in this era of. Um, you know, potential fraud and counterfeit and fake goods. A lot of people are interested in NFTs as a way to prove and justify that you've bought the real thing. We are which. Okay, so what about if you, you want to invest? With the base rate at an all-time low and the pitiful savings rates we've been faced with over the last year, buying cryptocurrency could be seen as an attractive investment. So what if you want a, a slice of the action? I mean, it is, of course, not without its risks considerable risks, I think it's fair to say. And we'll get onto that later on. But first, Gavin, how would you or I go about investing in this space? How can you decide what cryptocurrency is worth investing in? And then how can you actually invest? Great. Thank you, Lucia. Um, so I think I think the first thing is probably in terms of the, the mechanics of, of actually buying or selling cryptocurrency. So a bit like a bit like with any other asset, really, you need the help of other companies, typically. Uh, so, you know, in the same way that if you make a decision to buy into uh, a particular type of uh, financial instrument, be that a, an ETF or be that um, a share or a bond, you normally need to go through a broker or you need to talk to your bank directly. There's always normally someone you need to, to, to go through in order to access um, the market upon which they're traded. And, and crypto cryptocurrencies or crypto assets are certainly no exception to that. So typically what you would need to do is uh, register with one of the, the Typically, larger exchanges would certainly be my recommendation. So companies like Kraken, for instance, 
Um, when you register with them, uh, these organizations will then um, take you through the normal checks to become a client. Um, so typically you will um, go through the anti-money laundering checks, the AML checks, et cetera, uh, the kind of KYC checks, which stands for know your client. And these normally revolve around, um, you know, taking your picture, providing digital identification, be it that your passport or your driving license. Um, you normally put in your uh, banking details in terms of how you're going to buy and sell, et cetera. And once you're verified um, and go through the various regulatory hurdles, um, you then have access to that market. So, um, you know, using a debit card or whatever card you choose, you can then deposit funds onto that exchange. And then on that exchange, there will be a, a, a market which is being made. So in the instance of something like Bitcoin, for instance, um, the currencies will be being bought and sold. So there'll be a buy price and a sell price, similar to what you get with any other uh, type of asset. Um, and then you're free to trade on that particular exchange. Um, there are some risks associated with that uh, because it's uh, not quite regulated in exactly the same way or uh, as, as perhaps more mainstream assets. Um, and lots of people will choose to um, what we might call not hold their assets on the exchange. So you can actually um, use the blockchain, which we mentioned before, as your custodian, which is per perhaps another question for another day. But that's certainly uh, something just to bear in mind. Uh, the bigger question, though, is how you make your decision, which is what you asked about. Well, which coin? You know, I've already said there's over 8000. How do I make my choice? Well, obviously, a lot of people struggle to look beyond Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin was it's not necessarily the a, the, the most efficient system. It's not the most um, technically advanced system. It's got very poor capacity. You know, it only can typically process seven transactions per second, whereas the Visa payment network can do 20 to 30,000 transactions per second. So all of these things need to be borne in mind. But something like Bitcoin, because it was the first, because it's the most mainstream, it's the deepest network with the most users, it's kind of got that first mover advantage in a similar way that if, you know, Lucia, say you and I created a competitor for Facebook, even if we were better than Facebook, chances are we're not going to, you know, supplant Facebook as the new lead because they've got that first mover advantage. In terms of other currencies and coins you might choose to consider, as I said, there are many. Um, one of the websites I'd sort of sort of encourage people to perhaps go and have a look at would be um, to Google Howey coin that's spelled H-O-W-E-Y. Um, so this was a, a coin issued a few years ago by the SEC in America, uh, and it was a fake coin. Um, it's a fake coin. Uh, and then off the back of it, um, the SEC have issued uh, a whole list of red flags, things to look for as potential warning signs when you're evaluating a coin. And although it's not necessarily an exhaustive list of things to check for, um, it's, it's a nice uh, health check so that if you are considering parting with your money, they may be some of the things to think about before you potentially take the plunge. Now, while it might be a new and quite confusing world of investing, I was really interested to find that one of my colleagues at Witch has already dipped her toes in the water. Here's Kate's experience of cryptocurrency so far. I got interested in kind of investing in general, probably at the beginning of the first lockdown last year. I think savings rates are so bad at the moment that I was really... Sort of not happy with my savings accounts and I was doing some research into investing and that sort of led on to being really interested at first in cryptocurrencies and it all just felt a lot more exciting than the kind of traditional forms of investing I guess which led me on to wanting to buy some bitcoin myself I think it's difficult to get a kind of balanced view of cryptocurrencies, really. Everything feels like people are either really anti it or sort of think it's 
100% going to be the future of all money. I got a bit excited the other day because I was buying myself some bath bombs and I saw that I could actually pay for the bath bombs online in Bitcoin. So maybe that's the future. Maybe rather than rather than trading it in, I will be buying things online with my Bitcoin. Who knows? So I think that's that's the exciting part of it. So I think I'll probably just wait and see. Now, the value of cryptocurrency is known for being extremely volatile, but this is just one of the dangers associated with this type of investment. To talk us through some of the risks, I'm joined by the deputy editor of Which Money magazine, Sam Richardson. Sam, tell us more. Thanks, Lucia. I edit the letters section of the magazine and we hear from a cryptocurrency scam victim pretty much every other issue. Um, quite a few of these scams start with fake celebrity advert. Holly Willoughby's quite targeted, Deborah Meaden from Dragon's Den. Uh, and they're talking about a miraculous way to make money through cryptocurrency. Uh, to be clear, these celebrities have not endorsed these adverts. Um, many of the newspaper articles, they lead to a fakes. Uh, we've also seen Instagram accounts promoting similar schemes. So with these schemes, you enter your details. You often receive a phone call and a set up with a phony trading account. They ask you to make a small payment, be £250. And your investment will appear to grow substantially. You'll then be asked to invest more. But when you try and get that money out, they go silent. You never hear from them again. Uh, the most recent figures we have from action fraud suggest the average victim of crypto asset forex scams loses over 14 grand. So not small amounts. If you've sent money to one of these sites and are feeling a bit queasy right now, uh, it may be possible to get that money back. Uh, do search which how to get your money back after a scam. So in October, the Financial Conduct Authority, the industry regulator, banned the sale of financial products that reference cryptocurrencies, not the cryptocurrencies themselves, but products uh, that are based on them. Um, and they cited the prevalence of market abuse and financial crime and cyber theft as well. Fake investment scams don't just affect cryptocurrencies, they affect all types of investments. Uh, but with a traditional investment, say shares or funds, it's much easier to verify that you're dealing with a genuine firm. Uh, you go to the Financial Conduct Authority Register, which you can find online. But cryptocurrencies aren't regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. So, you know, even genuine exchanges may not appear on the register. Uh, not being regulated also means that, you know, unlike a savings account with a bank or an investment platform, you're not covered by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme if a cryptocurrency exchange goes bust. So you could lose a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, these exchanges have gone bust in the past. Um, also, if you have a dispute with that exchange, you know, we've heard a lot about people losing passwords and having to dig them out of piles of trash. Well, you won't be able to appeal to a financial ombudsman service, which deals with disputes between consumers and organizations. And, you know, given all of these risks, the lack of protection, um, cryptocurrencies have to take extreme care to invest. Uh, but investing shouldn't be that difficult. So if you're considering getting into cryptocurrency, just take 10 minutes, go on our website, look at the other assets you could invest in to reach your financial goals. Now, another red flag for potential investors and companies is its carbon footprint. This is a concern that the editor of the Witch Computing magazine, Kate Bevan, is keen to stress. I mean, one of the problems is the way Bitcoins are generated. They're generated as a reward for what's called mining, which is basically solving a cryptographic problem on a computer. However, the amount of computing power that's required to solve that note is astronomical. 
Cambridge University suggested just the other day that Bitcoin now uses more electricity a year than the whole of Argentina. So it is an enormous problem. Now, listeners will remember we've discussed the rise of ethical or green investing on the podcast before. And with investors moving their attention towards such issues as sustainability, Gavin, what does this mean for the future of cryptocurrency? Could its carbon footprint be the Achilles heel that ultimately stands in the way of its success? Yeah, sure. It's it's certainly a um, a significant issue for the world of, of crypto assets and cryptocurrencies in particular. Um, so you mentioned, I think, in the in the clip there about um, about Bitcoin in particular. Um, lots of statistics released on this, uh, particularly from Cambridge, um, and there has been historically that you know the electricity usage was around about a quarter of one percent of total global electricity consumption, so equivalent to that of a of a kind of small to medium sized nation. So typically, countries like Cuba and Argentina are often mentioned. So it's not insignificant. Um, the reason for this, because a lot of people might think, well, why on earth does it take so much electrical uh, electrical power in order to to maintain this this new system of digital money. Um, well, the reason is, is is as we talked about before, the idea that this is a, a, about communities verifying transactions rather than individual banks. And obviously, when that starts to happen, um, it means that there's a lot of duplication of work. Uh, and that duplication of work, that description of work is is typically that of using your computer processor, which needs electricity, which needs to be paid for uh, in order to make that happen. So that's where it comes from. Um, I think there's two things to note, though. The first one is that the the technologies are, that underpin some of these currencies are changing. They're improving. Um, so with the likes of Ethereum, we're now moving to Ethereum 2, which is um, a, a newly improved version, which is going to make things cheaper and more efficient in terms of the way it's used and how the currency is moved. Uh, with Bitcoin, there are various initiatives, so something called the Lightning Network, to try and relieve this um, uh, pressure on the network to make it more sustainable and also to make it faster and cheaper to use. Um, and I think it, it's important to look at this in the historical context. So, so yes, it is particularly uh, poor in terms of carbon footprint, but it's also very young in terms of its life. So it's a bit like if I took you back 100 years and we went to, to have a look at the, the, the start of, the, of aviation and we looked at the Wright brothers and um, you know, we looked at the quality of their plane and how far they flew uh, and how efficient the engine was. And we could, we could really criticize it. You know, we could say, you know, they've not flown very far. You can't carry people. It's very fuel inefficient. It's dangerous. It's not safe. Um, however, you know, you could look at that and say, well, look, over the next few generations, that is going to completely change the way that international travel and that we as human beings operate. And that's almost what I think we're looking at here. We're looking at the future of money. We're looking at this kind of contest for which currencies will be the future of money. And although they're not necessarily great in their current form, you know, it's my opinion that over time we're likely to see their their underlying technologies improve, become more sustainable, become more efficient. And don't forget that sustainability argument is often coupled with how much it costs to actually use and therefore access these systems. So it's very much in the interest of the crypto space to not just um, make things better from a sustainability point of view, but that that also will then spill over into making the, the network quicker, easier and cheaper to use. So so their interests are aligned in making in making these currencies uh, fit for purpose in terms of in terms of their future use. And finally, then, Gavin, this cryptocurrency bubble, could it burst any time soon? Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you prefix that with the, with the word bubble. And it, the bubbles, tulips, a lot of the time, these are things which are mentioned in cryptocurrencies. And the number of people who contact me to say, 
oh, you know, should I invest? Should I not? You know, what's the future hold? I think importantly, it's, it's really important to recognize that, that no one really knows, right? So, you know, this is an asset class. We're not talking about, you know, basis point movements and, and yields on bonds and whether they'll be slightly higher or lower than we think. This is, this is a riskier asset class. So, you know, for anyone who's considering uh, potentially investing, you need to make sure that A, you do your research and B, that, you know, if you do decide to invest, it needs to be proportionate with that risk in terms of your overall portfolio. I think the easier thing to do is when you look at things like Bitcoin, it tends to split people across like a almost like a binary argument. Many people will predict that it's going to die. And there's lots of websites which actually monitor the, the, the death of Bitcoin as predictions, which have so far not come true. Uh, and many other people will predict, you know, million dollar plus Bitcoins and be very sensationalist in, in Twitter feeds, etc. I think the easiest thing to do and, and as an academic is try and you know, look at both arguments. And I think the easiest thing to do is to think about what Bitcoin will not be. So the first argument is that of Bitcoin maximalism, which is often used when people try and predict million dollar plus Bitcoins. The only way those prices work is if Bitcoin ultimately crowds out all other fiat currencies. So we see the, the death of the dollar, the death of the euro, and we see those currencies start to disappear and Bitcoin becomes this kind of global standard norm. Um, I don't really see that happening. I don't see the institutions uh, of incumbent power letting that happen. And therefore, I would start to curtail and, and, and deem that to be not necessarily impossible, but certainly unlikely. The second alternative is that of the death of Bitcoin. Now, equally, Bitcoin is a system which allows people to bank without banks. It allows them to move money, in some cases, more cheaply and easily than that of their existing financial systems. It allows them to do so in a, in a kind of pseudo anonymous way. So it means that, you know, uh, tax authorities, legal authorities, uh, capital controls at borders, all of these things can be um, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, moved around, if you like, by using Bitcoin as opposed to your existing financial system. I think a system like that, assuming it doesn't uh, suffer any kind of hack or problem, will always appeal to some people in society in different parts of the world. And therefore, Straight away, you know, from my perspective, at least, I can say, well, look, I don't believe Bitcoin maximalism will happen and I don't believe it's going to die either, which means it's kind of this hybrid. It's always going to stick around. The question is, you know, at the moment in time, it's, it's valued at just over a trillion dollars market capitalization. You know, it's, it's getting up there with with being worth more and, and on par with companies like Facebook and, uh, and Google in particular. Um, so the question is, how far can it go? Now, at this moment in time, as I said, it, it's about 13th or 14th on the list of currencies. So it's bigger than the Russian ruble. It's bigger than the Thai bar. My personal opinion is that um, we are likely to see increased volatility as we go forward. That's kind of comes with the territory of crypto assets. We'll probably see increased regulatory uh, adoption and potentially institutions moving in. The medium to long term bet for Bitcoin is probably that of a buy recommendation. You know, if that was something that I was thinking about, um, but certainly for anyone doing so, they need to be fully mindful of the fact that, you know, we might not necessarily see the exponential gains that we've seen historically happening going forward. Gavin, it's been brilliant talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. I, we could have spoken for a, another half an hour, another hour. So we'll have to get you back on the podcast again. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Witch Money Podcast. If you've got a comment or question on anything we've mentioned today, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the podcast or on social media at Witch Money. For more on savings and investments and alternative ways to invest, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was produced and edited by Rob Lilly with additional support from Ian Aikman and Kim Carver. Mm-hmm.